Today's episode of Getting Better Acquainted was recorded in a cafe and the people in the cafe were really kind and they turned the music off in the background, which was great. But there is some background sound as people come into the cafe and use it as people do to talk to each other and to, to discuss things. So I cycle to work most days. It takes about an hour to get to Chiswick, although I work in various places and I always listen to this podcast now while I cycle. Oh, wow. So there's that feeling of just having listened to loads of these now, right. just at random them from the early days and much more recent ones in fact wow. i listened to one yesterday or this morning in fact sorry yeah well there's quite there is quite an extensive back catalogue so if you discover so. the show then there's loads to dig into although the further back people go the less i agree with my past self <laughs> on pretty much everything but that's okay people change people grow all those things but please don't judge the me now or any of those past me's i always I always want to say so thanks for giving me the opportunity is there anything um, then where you've listened to it and gone oh I really don't agree with that anymore yeah loads of things I mean I've changed my I've changed my, a lot of my language choices I've changed um, I've also changed my I mean I, I define as a feminist now I didn't think men could be feminists when I started this project uh, early on there's a lot of kind of questioning about what can we do about the kind of difference between men and women and how we have and, and I don't believe there is a difference anymore a significant oh, wow. difference um, I'm really going to listen out. So there's been so many changes. I mean, you know, so, so it's really painful to listen back to some of them. And then particularly, like, language choices is difficult to hear. Like, Facebook reminds you what you said now. Sure. Like, and that upsets me um, when I see that written down. So I don't, I don't tend to listen back. But any time I do, I'm always, there's always a few bits I, I cringe at. Do you ever think about if in 10 years' time you're still listening to your podcasts? What is it that you don't know now? Yeah, that will I'm be sure. <laughs> I'm sure five years' time I will not agree with this guy now. Sure, you I'm just maybe, really offended you know, someone, by the way. Who, who knows, who, exactly, who knows what I've changed. My, you know, maybe I'll have completely changed my perspective on things. I hope I'll... I don't think I'll have changed... I don't think I even have changed. I think what I've done is developed. I think I've, I was always going in certain directions in my thinking. I've just grown more educated about them and that's that's meant I've had to ch- challenge things that was like were inside me like from society that I hadn't really thought about. I mean it's not just this show that's done that. It's just been all of the work I've done over the last five years, which this been this has been a catalyst for, even if it's not been on this on this show. But anyway, enough about me. <laughs> Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better I want to get better, better, better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Zach. Hello, Zach. Hello. I like that though. I always like it when there's a bit of chatter because I like, as you know as a listener, I put a kind of bit at the start of the show. Uh, and I, I like it when that's a quote from inside the show sometimes, but I, even, I like it even better when there's like a, a kind of like prologue bit. I, quite, I like that. Um, but it's hard to engineer, so I don't try to. First of all as well, I mean, I've already said this to you uh, off mic, but I, sh- I feel I should acknowledge it on mic. Happy birthday. Thank you very much. I've recorded a GBA on my birthday before, but I've never had somebody that I've been recording it be their birthday. I don't think, I mean, if somebody's a real kind of uh, aficionado of the show, then I'm sure they might, they might have they might differ I might have forgotten something but this feels like a, a significant thing for me is it really sad that I'm excited to be a getting better acquainted 
new thing. No, <laughs> like no, exclusive. Don't, I don't think that's sad at all. And I think I can understand wanting to do something new and different. And, and also, it's kind of birthdays. One of the things they are is a con- contemplative time Absolutely. to consider where you are in life. I mean, I, I don't think of birthdays that way. I think of the new year that way. Sure. Um, but I know a lot of people think of birthdays that way. I hate birthdays, uh, apart from my 30th, which I liked. Ah, OK. I'm the opposite. I absolutely love birthdays for that reflection. So the first question I ask everybody uh, is, how do you know me? So that's an interesting one. Everyone always says that, but it is an interesting one. I think <laughs> you came to see a play I was in, Son of Man by Alexander Nye. Yeah. And then months later, we were both on the same panel for International Men's Day, which is a complicated idea in itself. And I think I recognised you initially from having been in the audience of this play, which is Weird, yeah. absurd because my facial recognition isn't best. Um, <laughs> but then you're quite distinctive. I so. am quite distinctive. <laughs> I mean, I look a little bit like Jesus, so that might have been, <laughs> that might have been interesting in it that was play. within the themes that, of a play, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but that play was an interesting play, written by an old friend of mine who I feel very close to. Growing up, he, he made music and I wrote. When he started writing plays, I was like, hang on, you're moving into my territory. But he turned out he, he, can, he can write pretty well um, and I've been, a, you know, admired his work. Um, but that play's an interesting play. I mean, he's been on this show promoting that play a while back so people could listen to that or oh, put that in the show notes. But it's a play about the early life of Jesus and the community around him, but told by, you know, Alex is an atheist and it's kind of like, uh, kind of trying to be really realistic about what might have been rather than treat it like uh, religion, religious Actually, idea. I think also good to note that he's an atheist with an erudite knowledge around the Bible and those stories too. Oh, he loves it. He I, uh, loves it so much that it's an, inter- it's an interesting, it's interesting when atheists really are so interested in religion. Absolutely. It's, it's an interesting uh, dynamic. Not all, not, not all atheists are like that at all. My partner's an atheist. She doesn't think about religion. Sure. It's not interesting to her, but but Alex is is so so much of an atheist. Um, I, I often wonder if he'll always be one. Uh, we shall see. I um, I sing in a gospel choir, and um, I told the vicar of the church because I'm I'm not particularly religious at all. Uh, in fact, I'm Jewish, so definitely uh, not within that gospel tradition. But I told him I was in this play about the teenage years of Jesus, but I didn't tell him it was you know drugs, sex, rock and roll, homosexuality, etc., etc., etc. I think it's the first or second night. I come on stage and, of course, he's the first person I see in the front row wow. ready to watch the show. Um, and he absolutely loved it. And I think what he loved even more than the play was afterwards he spoke to Alex in the bar and I think they had a very in-depth discussion about Psalms and gospel, etc., etc., about where the play had come from. And I thought... Because uh, when I initially saw the play, I thought, I don't know if this is something I want to do. I don't want to do something that's disparaging of other people's beliefs or faith. Right. But I felt like the play did it in a way that was respectful and honouring of, of where things came from. Yeah, I think that's fair, actually. I mean, I'm not religious. I'm, I'm agnostic, though, and I'm kind of militantly agnostic. I will not, I will not believe or, not, or disbelieve. Like, I, I, I want to remain questioning forever about that question. Sure. Um, because I don't like certainty. I don't like people. And I also, from that certainty comes a kind of... That's where telling other people what to do comes from. And I, I see that within the modern atheist movement as much as I see that within, within religious movements. Uh, and I think both of those ways are very problematic. Atheists have not done as badly as religious leaders over the years, throughout history. But plenty of atheists have also been totalitarian people. It just hasn't come from their atheism. 
But, you know, in the future, if, with, with the way Richard Dawkins carries on, who knows? You know, atheists, be care, be wary, I think. There I go, looking at the atheists. It's true. Uh, <laughs> now, you've, now you've drawn my attention to the fact that I do that. <laughs> You're going to keep noticing it. All, this all the different people that microphone is. Right, so this is really interesting that you are... First of all, you're Jewish, right? Which yeah. I guess is... I mean, Alex has uh, got, he's, he's got Jewish heritage as well. Yeah. So that's part of maybe why he's interested in, in kind of... Because it's not just about Jesus. Like obviously, the early life of Jesus means it's about Jewish culture. Yeah. In, 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 in fact, my character was the beginning of anti-Semitism within right. the play in terms of the mythology of what he would go on to do represented anti-Semitism. Right. Interesting. I didn't know that. Because, Alex, yeah, it's a very, very well-researched uh, <laughs> play. Although, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing to... I feel like Alex thinks he knows exactly what happened. Like, on one level, he was, he'll absolutely say he doesn't because he can't. But he, on one level, I think he emotionally thinks that he knows exactly the answer to what early Jesus was actually like. And that's what the play is. Well, he has a very compelling argument. Yeah, he is compelling in his argument, but he is also certain in it. Um, but, but, like, so that's really interesting. Cause I, so it's about early Jewish life. You're Jewish, but you also sing in a gospel choir. That's yeah. an unusual uh, and useful set of things for you to have. Uh, for Alex to draw on in that play, um, did, was 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 that what was the, were those factors of what attracted you to being in that play in the first place? Um, actually, no. I think it was much more mundane than that. Just the when I initially saw the script, it was a kitchen sink drama set in biblical times right? and just that in itself it's really weird to talk about a play that's happened and is finished because yes, you know, as you know you're very used to promoting things that are about to come so it's Although interesting to talk about some with Alex stuff. I mean he'll probably do a new version of it in well, some other format so. yeah exactly so people should probably son of man it's called but anyway yeah. and, and even in fact while we were rehearsing he would be rewriting every day which um, is interesting, actually, because that really stresses some actors out. Yeah, and um, musicians, incidentally. When indeed. you're in a band with him, that's also <laughs> stressing as well. Um, I, um, <laughs> I absolutely embrace that with, uh, with kind of everything I do in life. I love that spontaneity, that kind of never quite sure what you're doing or quite what's going to happen next. So um, I love the process, and I think from the first audition, I felt that there was this chaotic element about Alex and the project and I don't mean chaotic <laughs> no, in a negative a way in fact yeah completely the other way and sure enough I mean the, the whole process was incredibly chaotic because I think I'm quite chaotic energy and if you add that with a chaotic writer then this, this kind of piece comes about but actually one review I, I read kind of summed up why I was so proud of that piece they said they didn't know if they loved it or they hated it but it definitely wasn't boring they said there's always something bonkers going on stage at That's every fair. moment and um, I, I don't want to be in any piece of work or whatever I do in my life unless there's something exciting going on at every moment maybe not every moment but every other moment at least no I loved it I mean I actually loved it I was very surprised in lots of ways by by it and also you know there's a set there's a sex worker character in it uh, you uh, were playing a gay character and well you know there's two gay characters because sure. th- that's how you demonstrate people are gay generally <laughs> in drama uh, it's easy shorthand if they kiss e- if they're two men kissing each other we can tell their their sexuality and you're also gay yourself right yeah I mean, yeah, I knew that. Like, I, I asked it like it was a question because, it, <laughs> because this is a show. I'm coming out on the podcast. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay. Hey, mum, hey, dad. <laughs> uh, but, but so I guess, like, that was another thing that you could bring to the character when you were doing the show with these three parts of your identity kind of 
part of your process, I guess? Was that, was that part of what you were thinking about um, when you are doing I guess that? you've only ever walked in your own shoes, so you can only compare your own subjective <laughs> experience. But Absolutely. I think whenever you're in any play, you, you invariably find something about your life or something that you can associate or, or go, well, it's not quite that, but it's like that. Yeah. And so I suppose that's happening with any project. I guess in some of Man, maybe, yes, those themes did resonate more. But I think there were plenty of things about that character that I didn't relate to. He was Greek, for instance. Right. But I know what it's like to feel like the other, for instance, in a situation. Right. People often can't quite tell what my ethnicity is. Right. Um, I mean, I, it took me a while to work. I mean, I, I basically, you know, waited till you gave me enough uh, clues in Facebook posts to be comfortable <laughs> to suggest what your ethnicity is. And another, and it's interesting when someone's from a culture, they often think I'm from their culture, which I think right. doesn't happen with a lot of people. It's, it's usually the opposite, I think, because they know people from their culture. And they can see when someone's not one of them in, in, in uh, quotation marks. Yeah. Yes, I was going to say squ- uh, scare quotes. That, that's fine too. I think. Is that what they're called? Yeah, scare quotes. There's, yeah, there's that's a few American different version. words. But no, I don't get that. People often think wherever I go on holiday, they often think I'm from that area. But I, I can understand that you, you have an ambiguous ethnicity in your appearance. Like I can understand why people make that mistake. So you're Jewish in terms of you are Jewish, but you, are you religiously Jewish? You're not. I, I'm not religiously Jewish. I was brought up, I would say, semi-religiously Jewish whatever that means so I went to a Jewish school I observed Jewish rites I never really it's interesting now because I'm such a questioner and I'm questioning things all the time but actually I think in my early years I wasn't such a questioner so the thought of should I question that these that I'm having to do these things or be in these places or pray in these certain rituals it didn't really occur to me to question it I was just kind of doing it and I know later on in life for lots of people when they've had that situation they look back and they're almost annoyed that they were put through that or they feel like they were cheated or that they were robbed and I don't at all really I think I was given a set of core values that I would say still stay with me in the same way that Christian core values stay with me or any religion core values stay with me and you know, so I'm not anti-religion in that sense. I think if there's a set of rules that's encouraging you to be nicer to your neighbour, to be more loving and less hating, obviously it doesn't always manifest itself like that with some of the religions that are going on in various places around the world. But I think when you come down to the core of these things, how could I be annoyed that you know I was brought up to be encouraged to care about other people? No, I agree with you. I mean, that's one of the reasons. You know, I have problems with organized religions because I have problems with power structures Uh, I don't have a problem with people kind of tapping into community and kindness and connection and all of these things which are within some religions as well as uh, absolutely not within some religions some of those religions call themselves the same name but they're very different religions because they're practiced by very different people you know I I have a clear memory though of being in a Jewish school on a Sunday uh, I was probably maybe seven, eight years old and they were handing out sweets and I remember being told I had to share and I remember just at that early age that was maybe the first politicisation in me of I have to share so I don't have the choice to share because it's a good thing to share or because I want to share but actually what was mine that I arrived here with I have to distribute among the group because that's for the greater good of, of God or for the greater good of the group if they said it was a greater good of the group then I might have bought the argument a little bit more. Right, right, but I just right. remember back then thinking <clears throat> there's something really strange about a divine power telling me that I have to share my right, stuff. Right, right, right. And I remember having that argument with the teacher who um, didn't uh, argue it out with me but just took the sweets off me and <laughs> shared them among the group. That's really interesting. And we'll, we'll also come back to politics a little bit later <laughs> on, I'm sure. So the second way that we know each other is through happening to turn up on a panel about uh, masculinity at the, yeah. at, at, in the same place. It was uh, part of uh, short-sighted uh, cinema were doing some a screening of 
films about masculinity and then we were invited to be part of a panel there was me you and a, a journalist I think from maybe from BuzzFeed or something yeah am I right uh, your memory is better than mine <laughs> I have no idea sorry think, if that yeah. person's listening well it was it was three it was three of us and it was a very strange like it was a, a strange situation and none of us had made any of the films we weren't talking about the films that we'd seen we were all kind of contacted because we were uh, I guess people who they considered good to have on a panel about International Men's Day yeah. uh, I feel ambivalent about International Men's Day in lots of ways which is not to say I don't think that there are men's issues within society I do uh, I think that they're caused by patriarchy generally but yeah I mean I certainly feel a bit odd about that day and when we went on that panel there was we saw the films then we had a break and in that break, I spoke to this woman outside, and I just assumed in my liberal feminist bubble in my head, because I'd been just doing a show about patriarchy so much the week before, I was really like uh, on it, I knew all my facts, and I was sort of talking to this woman, and she just didn't believe that patriarchy existed, oh, wow. and she didn't believe that there was a need for feminism. And I found myself in this weird position of trying to kind of convince a woman without mansplaining to that woman that patriarchy and feminism existed and then I went on sort of the panel and I was kind of really destabilised by that conversation in that break and I kind of went into that panel much more defensive and much more kind of confused in my mind like that I'd been just before I spoke to this woman she was in the front row as well she was like (laughs) not impressed with anything I was saying but you were very confident and I like and together on that panel I I was very grateful for your energy uh, up on that stage you were very much like you didn't like argue with anyone you just kind of took things in whatever direction you wanted kind of playing off what they said rather than and allowing that to just if there was a difference between what you were saying and what they were saying allowing the audience to decide so it wasn't confrontational but why did you end up on a panel about masculinity because I mean you, you I did a show about for, you know, for listeners who don't know me I did a show about masculinity that's why I was invited on but why were you invited um, so I guess there's two strands to that one which I'm sure we'll come on to later is my wow that's that's noisy <laughs> yeah. uh, we're in a uh, we're in a cafe in Camden by the way for background sound fans they've kindly turned off the music though am I allowed to promote them in fact yeah, you, you know, are, absolutely. Um, they're called 42 Beans. Um, they're not an LGBT cafe, but uh, I think all the staff who work here are LGBT, and they also host once a month the local Camden LGBT forum within the cafe. So there's lots of cool connections, a real community cafe. So. Yeah, it seems really nice coming in. They were really welcoming to me, and it's a really nice uh, little space, which is nice uh, to have a small cafe. And there's loads of cool books around. It's good. It's a really good atmosphere. Good, I'm glad you like it. Um, <laughs> so there's, there's two aspects to why I was asked on the panel. One was the political strand, uh, my association with politics, which uh, right. I think it was Jen, wasn't it, uh, who organised it? Kate. Well, I know Kate, but, oh, okay. uh, but you I think might it's know Kate and Jen. Yeah, yeah, so you know the, the other member. Of uh, that so that team. was one strand. And then the second strand, I don't know if you know this about me, actually, but um, one of my main jobs or, uh, is I work as a counsellor. A mental health therapist at various drama schools and universities so um, male suicide young male depression as, as it is with females too but particularly males is a subject very close to my heart so um, I can understand why people would roll their eyes at the idea of an international men's day yeah. in the same way they might roll their eyes when someone says all lives matter rather than black lives matter but I do think the two things are different and yeah, I think I actually agree um, there, there's not a need to have an international men's day at the expense of an International Women's Day. But I think there are men's issues in society that don't get talked about. And actually, um, I think this kind of young white working class male is one of 
you know, that small group in society, that demographic that often gets left out, particularly in kind of conversations of the left as well. Because quite understandably, we focus on female issues, we focus on issues of ethnic minorities, and those absolutely should yeah. have focus. But I think they can get left behind easily. So when I, I was asked true. to do that panel, I was more than happy to, to speak up for men. Well, I think that's true. And I also think that, you know, when you think about things in an intersectional way, that what we're talking about when we're talking about International Men's Day is going to be also working, like you say, working class men, but also black men and gay men and all of the men who so, get a, a bad, uh, tr- badly treated by society. And, you know, I know from my own experience, you can be a heterosexual and white and middle class and still be treated uh, badly by society because you don't conform to their ideas of what masculinity is. Sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing how fragile masculinity is uh, about these things often. Um, but, but I, you know, I agree with all of that. Like, we were singing, we, are, we, we sing from the same <laughs> hymn sheet in that, or gospel sheet, in, in, that, <laughs> yes, like in, that, in that regard. And I do think there is an importance of focusing on men's issues sometimes, certainly not at the expense of other issues, but, but there's plenty of time we can hopefully focus on all of the different issues in society if we want to grow as a society. But I guess my fear of what I'd like to see in what I say in my show is like a men's rights and men's wrongs movement. I want... That I feel nice. like, patriar- like patriarchy needs to be addressed on International Men's Day because it's the, the root of all men's problems, as well as women's, as well as in, in non-binary people's. You know, like it's it's that's that. So that's what I sort of sometimes get frustrated with International Men's Day is that some of the people high up organising it don't like don't like my kind of attitude towards men's issues. They are more like likely to talk about men being kind of overlooked in a way that kind of I think it raises how so many issues are overlooked like you might be right that the left might be talking about women's issues but most people aren't yeah uh, they're not talking about men's issues either but I think you know we should get people talking about all issues which is why I think it's fantastic you had that experience with that lady just before you went on the panel which I didn't know about <laughs> um, because I think it's fantastic when any of us are certain about something and then right. we meet something right. that's completely out of that bubble I mean the echo chamber of Twitter and Facebook has been well documented and well talked about but I think it's so easy to forget how much of an echo chamber and how much of a bubble we, we live in so yeah, much yeah, of yeah. the time again in politics one of the reasons why I love door knocking and I absolutely love it is because everything that you think you know, <laughs> you very quickly realise that you don't, or that's not necessarily been people's experience. Right. Actually, that wasn't entirely represent, uh, accurate representation. 90% of the time you hear what you're expecting, but there's just those few times where yeah. you really remember a conversation no, that puts things in, in you know, perspective. I think there's something interesting too about that idea of focusing on more than one issue at a time. I went to um, an animal welfare march this weekend about going vegetarian or going vegan and vegetarian myself, but um, someone... Criticised, commented, no, they criticised and said, I think there's much bigger issues in the world at the moment than animal welfare. And I said, absolutely, there are bigger issues than animal welfare at the moment, but I'm not sure why we're picking or choosing what injustices we choose to ignore or choose to deal with. And actually, there might not be enough money in the world to deal with everything, but there's certainly enough time with all the people there are to focus on issues and deal with different things. I mean, they're all interconnected as well. Absolutely. I mean, like, you, I, I, I'm not a vegan, I'm not a vegetarian, I have sympathies with those. Uh, with those decisions but I I do think that you know environmentally you know the amount of meat that we eat as a culture is drastic so you know like and the way that we behave towards other animals is it also is part of how we behave to each other so there's so many reasons why animal welfare is also connected to human issues and to environmental issues and planetary issues this idea of single issues 
is nonsense anyway. There's no such thing. Absolutely. Um, there really isn't. And, and, you know, I think, like, when you look in London at the moment, housing is, a, is an area where a lot of activism is happening and a lot of people are coming together. And they're coming together not just about housing. It's just housing is the headline. But they're coming together, you know, with t- issues of feminism, issues to cl- of class, and, and all sort of redistribution of wealth and all sorts of things. But housing is the headline, you know. Like, sometimes you need a flag. But, but there's no single issues, I don't think. I agree, and I think there's a big danger there. So I, I spent uh, last weekend, no, not two weekends ago, at an Axe for Housing Act um, summit. Um, I'd say the majority of people in there were, were Labour supporters, but it wasn't a Labour event, um, but it just had that very much momentum feel to it. And we had lots of sitting around in circles and talking about issues, and it was fantastic. I really enjoyed it, and people were, were really receptive to my ideas, and they enjoyed hearing from other people too. Um, I'll put in a plug there too that one thing I'm really pushing for is a private renters union. I think it's absolutely something that's necessary, particularly in London, where private renters kind of it's increasingly becoming this demographic that it's just so unaffordable to live in London. There's so much stress. I think I've moved five or six times in 10 years, but I'm a young person. I can move. It's not a problem for me. But if you're a young family with a baby, you know, that's an absolute nightmare. Um, but my big problem with it is I don't know if it's becoming this thing in protest culture, and I'm certainly guilty of it, that we pick up an issue, we wave the flag for it, and we do everything we can about it. And then it either gets changed, which is great, or very often it doesn't get changed, but we take the compromise of, of what does get changed and we keep pushing for change. Meanwhile, this whole capitalist political system that we've got going on that is destroying so many people's lives both here but around the world just keeps rolling on yeah. and it's almost by going to those things or picking housing as an issue we're almost accepting the amount of difficulty and um, worrisome, worrisome things is going on in the world without challenging them anymore we kind of go okay we know we can't change that so let's focus this one thing we can change which is housing and I don't want to come from a privileged position here and say if you've not got a house then <laughs> Those well, things yeah. probably that's why don't the seem activism so important. is happening at a grassroots level because people don't have houses; they Absolutely. have to act. Sure, um, and I'm being evicted at the moment, so I'm, I'm speaking from right, a, a right. place of understanding that. Okay, um, <laughs> I guess what I'm saying though actually is I know I'm going to be okay, so that's my privileged situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I know things will be all right, and I understand that there's people who don't know they're going to be okay. So to say to them you're just focusing on housing when you should be focusing on everything and the bigger issue is probably a privileged position to come from. But I think the people who are speaking up to those people we could all be doing so much more. But it's interesting, I, I, I mean, it's, it's interesting that you come to it from that point of view because my my experience of the housing uh, issue of activism around it has been, you know, I, I went and visited uh, Focus E15 when they did their sure. amazing action and occupation uh, in Stratford and I, uh, I recorded with them. Uh, I also sort of went to quite a few marches with them. Uh, I haven't been to as many of late. I wish I had been to more, but I have no money and no time and it's been unfortunate the way that's worked out but my experience with those activists is that they started at housing and they've moved out like okay. in their scope that they started with housing because that's something that was affecting them but now they absolutely are talking about capitalism they're talking about solidarity with other movements and across you know not just housing you know they're talking about solidarity like you know for example the black lives matter movement is a similar thing it started around black lives matter but they have they declared solidarity with palestine they've done lots of other things like that and so um like these single issues can actually move outwards as well as i, I agree for maybe more privileged people they sometimes 
move inwards. Uh, so it's, a, it's definitely a balance and there's all sorts of people. We need people looking at the big picture. We need people looking at the, the small detail. Um, I think I'd add to that and I'm fully aware of my own contradictions. So if you'd interviewed me on another day, I'd be very, I mean, I still am very passionate about housing and I'd be talking about why we need to be campaigning on housing. Um, but I would also add that I think that um, often those protests are protesting what's going on right now. But generally, and I'm talking about the left here, um, yeah, I am talking about the left here, we're not presenting an alternative. So um, I, ju- I just think protest culture has become a thing that we do now, and I think it's massively important that we do it, and I wish more people would engage with it. I think the next step, though, is if we are really going to make change, is that we start to think, how does society look after capitalism? How does society look when we have an accountable... Um, fair voting system that's um, working. How does society look almost post politics? Yeah, once I mean, we've I'm with you on this. I, mean, I am an anarchist. This is okay. un, un, you know, unsurprisingly, I'm with you on that. I wouldn't necessarily define myself as an anarchist, no, but I, I recognise you. But you you're can doing. understand why someone who is an anarchist would be pro. Let's look at what happens after capitalism. For that's sure. what I'm saying. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that is what anarchism is about, really, not just about uh, capitalism, but it's about it's about lots of other things. And to be honest, anarchy is not even a word that. I don't think any anarchists agree on what that word yeah, means sure. anyway. I mean, I certainly only use it because it is an sh- easy shorthand. Like any anarchist, I am uncomfortable with being put into a box. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm a pragmatic anarchist. And I agree with, you know, I, a lot of the... the one of the, one of the issues that you often are very passionate about uh, is proportional representation, and I massively agree with that. Like, sure. pragmatically, if we're going to have parliamentary politics, which I'm not a fan of, yeah. but if we are going to have them, we should have them in a proportionally representative way, uh, or we can't really have any kind of real democracy, I don't think. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think we live in a democracy, I'll, I'll say that. I agree entirely. I, d- I, I wouldn't even say I'm a fan of parliamentary politics. I'm certainly not a fan of it as it is. No. I have a, maybe a naivety or a hope, and I'll call it a hope, that with a fair voting system parliamentary politics could become something useful and something productive and mm-hmm. could be a good way of conducting a society but I agree at the moment parliamentary politics isn't helpful to anyone. No I mean that's it so yeah the second question I ask everybody is what do you do now and I guess we, people are, will be interested to know how you, <laughs> what you say at this point because there's been so many options uh, coming up to this um, If I didn't cringe why I said it I'd say I'm an art activist so I'm someone who believes in the power of theatre art, um, communication a connection to change the world and I'd say whatever mode that's in is the mode that I'll take so from one week I could be facilitating um, a community workshop I've just been working with the EU oh the EU I've been working with the EU uh, so I would take a, a different young activist from 28 countries we would all meet in London and for a month we'd work on an immersive piece of theatre around political issues that arose in their countries we'd work on that piece of theatre to try and find solutions or answers we'd create an immersive piece of theatre for the audience so that's one part of what it was for but the much more important part is that they then go back to their minority communities in Roma for instance um, and then they would work using the same techniques within their own communities sadly funding's being cut because of Brexit which you know is a whole other issue yeah. uh, but, so that's one thing I might be doing or uh, most days I'm counselling someone or meeting someone and, and, and just listening um, it's really inter- interesting doing this interview actually because you said at the very beginning that I was doing very well at not talking and asking questions because I'm very used to asking questions it's, it's not usually my mode to talk and that's been interesting in politics too to get used to when someone asks a question not answering a question with a question 
Although I think sometimes that's the most helpful way you can answer someone. Yeah, I mean, I wish more more politicians like asked questions and sort of admitted that they didn't know the answers yeah. and apologised and all sorts of things. That I, I I think that you know I'd like to see more more politicians with your kind of your kind of outlook. To be honest, I mean, I'm not I'm not a supporter of of. So let's get into the politics then, I guess. <laughs> so so like. What party do you currently belong to? Yeah, so this is complicated because when you contacted me um, to ask me to do this interview, my instinct, and I guess this is my political instinct, is to always be sure of what I'm saying at the time. And even if I'm not sure about it, to still keep asking questions, but at least take a stance and believe in that stance. Because I think when you're asking people to vote for you, you at least owe them some kind of stability. Right. I think that's not to say that you can't change your mind afterwards and there's a whole problem around the politics of U-turning and the media mm-hmm. and that's a whole other set of conversations but I think you know you, you need to know where you stand. And then so when you asked me can I, can I interview at your moment there was a certain vulnerability to say I'm being interviewed at a time when I'm not quite sure. Um, I would say I'm definitely still a Liberal Democrat member. Um, I'm currently undergoing a complaints process with them. Um, I guess part of what transpires from that complaints process will decide for me whether I stay in the party or not. But I'd be lying if I said that even if I saw the injustice that I pointed out when I complained about corrected, at this point it's been dealt with so badly that I would find it very difficult to campaign or remain in the party in its current form. Right, and in, but in the past you've kind of been moving towards the idea of standing for, for to be a, an MP for the, for the Liberal Democrats, right? I mean, I've stood, so I... Yeah, I, exactly, I, stood, I, I mean, yeah. I, yeah, I, I did, yeah. You have exactly. That's how I know. Um, but yeah. So, but you haven't. You, but this time you haven't been selected, right? Is that right? Yeah, uh, so it's not that I wasn't even selected. I uh, I wasn't. Um, I was excluded from being allowed to be on, right. on the ballot paper yeah. um, because I wasn't local to the Richmond area. And right. um, since that's happened, Richmond has now called a by-election. So it turned out it was all a hypothetical injustice before and now it's become a real injustice of I feel like there were a lot of things I wanted to say in Richmond and a lot of things I wanted to campaign on and crucially a lot of things that the Liberal Democrat members wanted me to campaign on at a grassroots level but they were never be, they were never allowed the opportunity to do that because I wasn't local to the Richmond area but the not being local to the Richmond area was a rule they made after the, after the fact once, once I'd applied so right. my point is that if you have to be local to an area in politics um, within an internal party I don't know if this is really boring for listeners, well, but I'll, inter- I'll yeah, no, I, I think it is interesting. Um, yeah. If you have to be local from a local area, then that needs to be specified, and I think there's good arguments for that. But I think there's better arguments for we're becoming less geographical, particularly in London. Communities are on Facebook, they're online. Um, I'm an ardent cyclist. I cycle around all the time. I was in Richmond a lot during the European referendum. I was an assembly candidate across the whole of London. So it's not like I didn't have any connection with Richmond. Um, and in fact, a, a BBC radio channel, when I was on, a, uh, on an interview with them, said that, you know, if I was a candidate for Liberal Democrats, they'd absolutely, I'd, they'd, you know, I'd, I'd have their vote. So there was a lot of support there. Um, I won't speculate on why I wasn't allowed to run because I don't want to get into all sorts sure, of legal know. complications. But, but, but so, like, the, 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 I guess the, the, the cliff notes is that you have been for quite a few years campaigning actively, standing for them. Uh, but you're currently in a kind of slightly slightly disillusioned position from them, right? Is that Absolutely, okay and, and that this isn't, hasn't come from a place of kind of convenience either. So just last May, yeah, last May, I was at a, a panel debate at Hustings run by Compass, who are a left-wing think tank. They were in the Labour Party, and now they're, right. they're, cross, they're cross-party, and they're fantastic. People should check out Compass. Um, they're really pushing for a progressive alliance across the, right. across the whole of politics, right. which is something I massively support. 
Um, and we were at a hustings, and I found myself, I'd been sent for our mayoral candidate, so I was um, stepping in her shoes uh, for the Liberal Democrats at this mayoral hustings. And I found myself complimenting Sean Berry, who is a Green mayoral candidate, um, saying that I think she'd be a fantastic mayor, and actually my problem wasn't with her. We had some, some differences, but actually our similarities were so much more united than what divides us, as, as, as Joe Cox said. Um, but I found when I complimented her that the audience found that quite strange that the mayoral candidate for one party was complimenting the mayoral candidate for another party. Right. So I remember that ringing alarm bells thinking, how have we got this system where when you agree with someone on a panel and you compliment them and mention that they you know, would also be good, people find that controversial. And second, someone asked a question in the audience, uh, a very, very specific question, to which some of the panel members I felt blagged the answer. And then when it came to me, I said, I don't really understand your question. Can I hear what your answer would be? And then I'll give you my opinion. And people in the audience found that really interesting. And then it turned out that other people on the panel then said, ah, OK, I, I get what you're saying now. And I thought, how has parliamentary politics got to this ridiculous position where people are forced to pretend that they understand what they're talking about really and to keep an audience with them or to, to keep credible? And I just don't think any of that, that system works. Well, that's what I'm getting at, really. I mean, I'd love more politicians to be like you, but it, it also seems like, to me, that... And I know and I've got a few friends who have kind of political ambitions in different parties, but some also in the Lib, Lib Dems. Um, but like I always think that they're really nice people and I hope that the political system doesn't break them. Sure. Um, but I also hope that like I, I also think it's almost like they're they're too nice to be allowed in. So that yeah. I feel like they'll either be changed to be the model of politicians that we already have and aren't working for us or uh, they will not change and then they won't be allowed uh, to, to progress up and to be getting into positions where the public can even vote for them, let alone getting you know, forwards from that. Absolutely. Um, and some, uh, sorry. Yeah, no, go on. Um, just something I noticed too was so when I did speak out about what had happened, lots of people were very supportive, but the viciousness and the negativity that came from within the party um, from voices that didn't like dissenting voices was just incredible to me. And I know we hear about this all the time, um, uh, the Corbyn versus Owen Smith debate, I think, was the pinnacle of that, of seeing sides turn on each other. Um, but when you're the focal point of it, it's really quite nasty. I'd say the past six months have been, and I say this without being melodramatic, I've had a privileged, lucky life, but I've been amongst the worst six months of my life just yeah. to really feel like I had support, I was in a family, I was fighting for something I really believed in, and I felt... I generally feel quite connected to the world and to what I'm doing, but I think I felt more connected, more passionate, more driven than I've ever been before. Um, and then to feel that removed away from you is so... In it's so intently frustrating to see an election in Richmond right now and feel like you could do a better job than the candidate they've got in place. And that will make people gasp if I even say that because they go, how can you not support our candidate? And you kind of go, well, of course I thought I would do a better job, otherwise I wouldn't have ever run in the first place. So yeah, I mean, what you wanted is, to be clear... What you wanted was the option of you to be presented to the party. Absolutely. You weren't saying, I deserve that candidacy. You were saying, I would like to be included for the possibility of that candidacy because of this amount of work I've done and this amount of commitment and these things that I feel like should be listened to by my party. Totally. I mean, I work in theatre. I'm used to rejection. So it's not about the rejection. <laughs> right. It was about so you're a, you're the fairness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. But the thing is, that's, an, that's really interesting that you come in at the, from, from that point of view. Why did you choose the Liberal Democrats in the first place? Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, so I think 
part of it um, is I was living in America. I, was, I, I wasn't political either. So growing up as a teenager, I was never particularly politicized. Um, and I think that's quite unusual in politics. People have usually come from political families or, well, exactly that. They've usually come from political families or people who talk around politics around right. the dinner table. We did, but very casually. And it was certainly never about party politics. So I, I went to America because I went out to a drama school there. Um, and I was in Georgia, way down in the deep south. So for the first time ever, I was, I was encountering, I'd say, weekly misogyny, homophobia, racism. I, I mean, not personally, but I was seeing it going on. Right. Um, and that created, I guess, a rage in me that I'd never experienced up until that point where I just thought, I've got to do something about this. And the obvious answer was to get political. So um, also the George Bush, um, I can't remember who he was running against at the time. George Bush was about to be elected for the second time. So that was going on in, in the state of Georgia as well. Um, so when I got back to London uh, or to the UK, I still had this kind of feeling of wanting to do stuff but not knowing what political party to join because I'd never really taken any notice. It was also the year Nick Clegg happened to become leader and I saw his leadership speech on TV and it was just a fantastic speech and I thought... I mean, he got my vote. Sure. I mean, I wish I hadn't voted for him, but okay. I, he, he convinced me to do so by a lot of his oratory, so I, I, I can understand why. Sure, and I, I think, you know, so Nick Clegg's a really interesting one because it would be so easy for me now to reject the coalition, especially from a place I'm coming from, which is much more now anti-party political, much more anti-the system. I would still defend most of the things that the Liberal Democrats did in Fair coalition. Um, not other, everything by far. My other friends who are Lib, Lib Dem, you know, my other friend who is in the Lib Dems would also defend that, and I, and I, I respect that. I mean, actually, I think now the coalition is no longer in power, it's a little bit clearer to see Absolutely. that they were... Um, the, the damage they were doing was reduced by the presence yeah. of the Liberal Democrats in the party. I mean, the irony here is actually I have more problems with what the party have done post-coalition. So, for instance, they kind of slipped under the radar because there's only eight MPs now, but six of them voted to bomb Syria. And I just... Um, yeah. I don't know how you can be liberal and a Democrat and, and vote for that. Like, it literally baffles me, and it, I'm incredulous to it. And I think, you know tuition fees is the obvious thing to have a discussion about and I think there are defences there I think there's very little defence for bombing Syria and people would argue that our allies asked to see which was David Cameron's argument at the time but I don't think because your friends have asked you to do something if there's no other justification you should go you know risk millions of innocent lives well I tell you what if we're gonna bomb we you know we have bombed Syria it was the wrong thing to do in my view but Take I, the refugees in, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and the Lib Dems are that, strong on that, so yeah. I'll give them their credit there. You know, they are calling out for refugees. Yeah, that's and that's true, and that's that's the thing. In these times, I feel like I, I, I'm definitely in a position where I'll happily stand shoulder to shoulder with Lib Dems, with Labour, with whoever, with Owen Smith. Ugh, I wouldn't like standing <laughs> shoulder to shoulder with him, but I would. Uh, but I, but I, you know, I mean. Yeah, I like. I don't like his views on normality. I don't like his misogyny. But I would stand shoulder to shoulder with him to, to, for the for the refugees to come in. Although I don't think Owen Smith would be standing shoulder to shoulder with me for the refugees because sure. I don't think that a lot of people in the the Labour Party uh, are on the right page around that one. It's interesting that you chose the Lib Dems, though. Rather, that, so that was. Why, why did they were so it was Nick Nick leg speeches yeah. and you looked in I guess to all of the options why yeah. not Labour or why not the Green Party yeah absolutely I think knowing much more about the parties now in intimate detail I did make the right choice for where my values generally sit um, 
I said this to a friend the other day and they thought it was one of my favourite things I've ever said. They said, do you still subscribe to Liberal Democrat values? I said, I do, I just don't think they do. So <laughs> I think I've stayed in exactly the same place while learning, learning new things. I think the party having... In some ways, it's going through post-traumatic stress disorder. It's been in this coalition. It had suddenly power that it ached for for years, and I don't think there's anything wrong with aching for power. And I know that makes me sound like Owen Smith a little bit, but I think (laughs) when you want to get stuff done, you do need to be in power. You do need to at least have access to power. So it's not that power is a dirty word, but power without principle is absolutely a dirty word, and I think there's a lot of that going on. Maybe without accountability as well. Yes, yes, indeed. So there's a lot of qualifiers on that. But I don't think to want to change things or to want to be able to make things better for people is it should be something that people should be ashamed of uh, but yeah but then to go from being in government to having so few MPs I think they've almost got a, a coalition hangover of still wanting to appear like they're in government and to appear to be happy to make difficult decisions and I don't think you should ever be happy about making difficult decisions I think you make difficult decisions because there's no other other way to go Right. And also, like, so, and it's an interesting thing to me that, you know, even though you're in one of the tribes, yeah. you, I, I, you know, follow, you know, being your friend on Facebook, I see you supporting anyone who's doing things that align with your values. A little bit as you've already described, you know, you, you will support the Green Party when they're doing the right thing, Absolutely. you'll support the Labour Party when they're doing the right thing. I mean, interesting, it's, it was really interesting to me because you had a kind of slightly celebrity moment this year uh, in relationship to Jeremy Corbyn, right? Sure. So do you want to just dis- explain what I mean by that? Like, Yeah, absolutely. So, I so, um, so I, I live just across the road from the cafe that we're in. Jeremy Corbyn was doing a speech at SOAS, which is like five, ten minutes walk away, 15 minutes walk away. And I wanted to go see him speak, and that's because I have a very, very complicated relationship with Jeremy Corbyn in terms of I've always been a big fan. Um, even before the, the leadership kind of stuff. I felt like in the same way that I feel about Caroline Lucas um, or I do feel about Clive Lewis now and, and various other people and Anna Suber in the Conservative Party actually at times. Um, that when there's people speaking up for the, the good fight then they deserve to be celebrated and they deserve to be applauded in the same way that if there's people you support who you don't agree with then you should never be worried about criticising them because ultimately they'll understand that you're taking a principled position. Right. Wanting to hear Jeremy speak in the public place uh, it was a few days after the referendum. I was still very tired from a referendum where I t- spent, you know, weeks yeah. volunteering. I'd been up at the count. It'd been a really, really late night. I don't think I got to bed till seven or eight in the morning. Right, I remember that. And then hadn't slept actually because yeah, um, Tim Farham, leader of Lib Dems, did a, a cracking speech actually. But at midday, so I went straight from the count to kind of home, got showered, and then went to go to the speech. And it was a bit like a wake, just being among people who agreed with you. Um, so anyway, it's a couple of days later and Jeremy Corbyn's doing a speech at SOAS. So I go along to, to hear the speech. I'm amongst quite a big crowd um, of clearly Momentum supporters and I'm applauding because I'm generally agreeing with what Corbyn's saying. I, I can't remember the speech in detail, but he's talking about refugees, about wanting to stand up for workers' rights and just things you can't disagree with. And then at one point he talks about freedom of movement through Europe and that rage that I was talking about in 2008 from being in Georgia absolutely just just hit me. And it's interesting because I haven't felt that rage since moving from America. Even while I've been in politics, I've been passionate, but I haven't been angry. And I'd say uh, ever since Brexit and what's happened in Richmond, the refugee crisis and homelessness, the rage is becoming more and more and I don't think it's necessarily even productive. So it's something that I'm looking to get back to the passionate place 
that right. is upset and disappointed and want things to change, but isn't angry. A lot of people are in that situation. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of us are trying to control our anger so that we can be a bit more constructive for society. Totally. And so the result of it was I shouted from the crowd, uh, what about Europe, uh, Jeremy? Where were you when we needed you? But what I would say instantly is, because it wasn't pre-planned, I hadn't thought about the words I was going to shout, but the words I was going to shout, I think, are very telling. So I didn't shout, you're a moron. I didn't shout, get down from the stage. I didn't shout, um, I, I'm upset with you. Well, I could have shouted that. I shouted, where were you when we needed you? I was acknowledging that we need people like Jeremy Corbyn, people who are strong in principle to stand up for things when we need them. I think Jeremy Corbyn failed us on Europe. I think he's failed us on civil liberties. I think he's failed us... I think he's failed us at every moment since he's been leader, and I know the media have been after him. I mean, he's, yeah, he's failed us from within a barrage of uh, attacks from not just the not just the right wing media, the left wing media, but also the right wing politicians. I mean, they've been they've been leaking and trying to attack him in, in every way they can. Uh, but what interested me about all of that is that you you called him out on something that a lot of people I know agree that he was he let pe- yeah. people down in representing Europe. I don't necessarily think he did. I do think he did make some arguments uh, against the Brexit. I think it's a difficult position to be in if you're someone with my politics. If I was in Jeremy Corbyn's position, I don't like what Europe has done. Yeah, I don't like what the UK is going to do separately from Europe. Though I don't think we should have left. But I do. A referendum argument but I do <laughs> have a lot of critique of uh, of, of the European Union, of, yeah. the, of the imperial colonialist force, and, and it is absolutely justified. And if we had a, a reasonable debate where everyone could actually put their nuanced views when we had this referendum, then Jeremy Corbyn would have been able to stand there and say, "I am pro staying in, but these yeah. are all the things I think are wrong, and if you vote for me in the future, I'll try and sort them out." And you know, it would have been a more nuanced situation, but. It, it, the thing was, he was saying more nuanced positions or nothing sometimes um, when there was other people lying and giving massive uh, Definitely xenophobic propaganda like on a line with, you know, Nazi Germany. I, I know people hate the Godwin's law thing, but if we don't like look at our press and see how we're progressing towards uh, totalitarianism, I think, yeah. then we're not going to stop ourselves from getting there. But anyway, that's my views. I'm no, no, I, 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 I hear what you're saying, but I would lean more towards he did very little, if nothing, rather than a nuanced position. I think, and I know I'm asking a lot of him, but he came with a lot of, this is what I'm going to do, so I'm holding you to account for that. Uh, or him to account for that, not you to account for that. No, no, sure. That. I'm, um, I'm not a supporter. I'm a member of the Labour Party. I didn't pay my money. But, uh, <laughs> but I felt like it was his responsibility to present that nuanced position, and I know the media wouldn't let him, so then it was his responsibility. That was a moment in time to find a way to break through that, to say... I'm, I'm not just going to play this media game. I'm not going to be politically expedient. I'm not going to worry about UKIP voters in the North that I'm going to vote Labour in the future. For once, I'm going to stand for something. I'm really going to speak out for what I'm going to stand at. I'm going to support for it. Um, I have a certain amount of sympathy for it. What I didn't have sympathy for it, which is why I shouted, is a few days after a referendum where I perceived you to have done very little, to then stand on the stage and play to the gallery on... European issues like for me that was the height of hypocrisy and it was a very difficult situation for me I lost one of my best friends over the situation and I think we probably um, have uh, lost each other for life possibly um, just because some of the things that were said after it uh, particularly from his end not things I particularly want to forgive so you know yeah, yeah, and, sure. and that's a much bigger conversation but uh, it, um, 
friends, some friends were worried that it was premeditated. I would not have gone into a momentum crowd that big and shouted at Jeremy. I'm just not that brave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it really was coming from an impulsive, instinctive place. But I still think it was the right decision. My only regret is that I didn't shout. And when are you going to support proportional representation? Because how can you say that you stand for a cleaner politics right. and then not support? You know that that infuriates me. That's, that's more rage. And that's all really fair enough. And, and one thing I would also add, though, which I didn't add in the list of people who Jeremy was under fire from, but he's also obviously under fire from his own party yeah, as well. So it's very hard for him to deliver on the things that he says he's going to deliver if. He's party is actively trying to stop him at every turn that said there's some I have some sympathy for your perspective on this I I, I certainly don't I don't fully trust Corbyn yet anyway I, I feel like um, it, being suspicious of all politicians is a sensible attitude to have and I you know like my agnosticism I remain agnostic on Corbyn even though a lot of things he says will probably mean I'll vote for him at this point but what I thought was really interesting is that you had that moment and you were very public in your kind of criticism of him very understandably yeah. but then when he made this speech at the conference this, this year you were very complimentary about and I thought that was a that that is shows to me a, a really nuanced ability to sort of like change position or to have different views about different issues and 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 allow this idea that yeah okay I didn't agree with him on this issue but I would work with him on these issues and yeah. I'm glad he's now going towards this thing there was a sense of like yeah not 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 writing people off like coming again the next day with a fresh angle of like how can we all work together now now we're here because that's the thing with Brexit we're in Brexit absolutely and it comes back to what I was saying we need Jeremy Corbyn and I mean a huge disappointment for me I'm coming back to Richmond again it's like my obsession but I think Richmond is going to be a moment in political history I really think it's going to be potentially that big about what did the political parties do and at the moment they're all failing so what I was calling for a couple of weeks ago or maybe even a week ago when we heard the by-election was called for actually for all parties to stand down, all parties on the left, and have a unity candidate that wasn't from a political party, but actually said, uh, we all agree that we oppose Heathrow, but everyone does anyway, so the idea that Zach Goldsmith resigning over Heathrow is misleading anyway. But the one big difference is Zach Goldsmith was very passionate about Brexit. So for uh, the parties who voted Remain to get together and say, this is about having a second referendum or this is about having a referendum on the terms of, of the Brexit. You can get into all sorts of complicated language about that. A few people agreed, but generally the tribes really said, no, no, we're sticking to our tribes. So the Lib Dems have put forward a candidate. What I would then love for the Labour Party to do is say, we're not challengers here. They're not challengers in Richmond and they never have been. It's always been... It's always been a Lib Dem seat, actually, until recently when it turned Tory. Yeah. Um, for Labour and the Green to step aside and support the Lib Dems. And I get the argument, though, actually, why should they? Because the Lib Dems weren't willing to step down when we talked about unity candidate. And I get that argument, too, but we're just in this arms race when no one will step down and what's going to happen in four weeks' time? We're going to have a Tory MP who's an independent. No one's got anywhere. We're still not accepting refugees. People's welfare is still being cut. People are still homeless. I mean, it's really depressing. No, it is, it is depressing, but it's a really interesting perspective. It's a really um, unusual one within politics sure. uh, to talk about that, to say we should step down, we should relinquish power here, yeah. or we should, you know, that's that's the kind of thing we need uh, so badly, yeah. uh, just as a culture, like not just in politics, just across the board. Like, in You're asking Turkeys to vote for Christmas because the people with the power... I know. Don't want to relinquish the power. I know, but you know, ultimately, it doesn't really matter. Like, it's not even. It's like, it's bigger than Christmas. Yeah. Like, like it's, it's it's the whole year. 
and like you know arguing about Christmas means the whole year is gonna go and be destroyed um, but yeah no I mean and that's what I meant by I, I think it's a huge moment it could have been a huge moment in political history because of course the people of Richmond deserve an MP that represents them so that's not taking that away from them but the opportunities present a different way of politics at a time when the world's eyes are on the UK because of what's happening with Europe I think was a way to present a better vision of how we can be in the future and I'm bitterly disappointed that no one took the reins and ran with that when, when there was the time would I prefer a Liberal Democrat candidate to win than Zach Goldsmith? Absolutely but um, whether they win or come in second place I think is so immaterial I'd, let me put it another way that doesn't sound like I'm attacking the Lib Dems I met someone from the Green Party a few months ago who was a quite high profile activist and I said you know what is the game plan you've got one MP I agree with so much of what you stand for but the world is literally burning you know, what are you going to do they said well we're hoping to have five MPs by 2025 and right. I thought we don't have time to wait for 10 years for these issues to be talked about 20, 2020 when like a third of all animals will become extinct 2020 um, I think it's a third like they Look it up in the Guardian. It's probably even worse than what I've presented. Yeah, I imagine so. Um, but yeah, I mean that's the thing. We are in a moment when we don't have time. I really agree with you on that. But I mean, you know, what do I do? I just do my uh, my activism and hope that that. Oh, will I change. think that's the most important thing anyone can do. It's it's a thing. I mean, I don't know if it's the most important thing. It's a thing I'm doing. Um, but it, but it doesn't have the immediacy of of the of the sudden change, the uh, complete change that we kind of need. Um, as a, you know, environmentally, but also not just environmentally anymore. Like in terms of the environmental issues that we've had all around the globe, have contributed to the to the wars that we're having and the refugees who are, are, are fleeing those wars. Um, it's, re- it's always about resources, and totally. we, so we have to learn to have less. And well, there's an interesting thing there too. So the technology is going to be that revolution, I think. Um, we were talking about you know in 20 30 years time with the rise of a robot the automaton um, how that will be finally the argument for a universal basic income this idea that you know you shouldn't have to work to have a secure income and then you can choose what you want to do so you can choose to work if you want more money and you want luxury or you can choose to be creative or you can choose to give charity or you can choose to do nothing but you know ultimately that's your choice and society will support you because we can't sustain the system I don't even think it's going to be 20 years I can't see how it can't be pretty soon I mean technology is coming fast Um, the system we have right now is unsustainable so I feel like a universal basic income there was a paper about it recently that says is this an idea whose time has come and I think it's not about it's time has come I just think it's time can't have not come because we can't carry on like this I mean I agree I agree with universal basic income I mean out of all the liberal democrats I've ever met including my my friend who is also in the liberal democrats you are the person I would most vote for like your politics are most well they're the closest to mine Sure. Uh, so it's it's a kind of a compliment, uh, but it's kind of a like a, also a you, you're, you're doing party. my bidding. <laughs> uh, um, but but yeah, like it, it's it's refreshing to hear these ideas being said by anyone really, and they need to be said more. So anyway, how does acting and therapy all work within within this uh, kind of that, you're, you're political? But that wasn't what you originally were were about, I guess. Uh, so how did they happen? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm one of the luckiest actors alive in terms of I don't 
I don't feel that need to act so I don't have to be acting the whole time I absolutely love acting it's one of the things I'm most passionate about and it's one of those things that makes me feel really alive I'm in that really lucky place now where it tends to be friends approach me with stuff or people who I don't know approach me with stuff because it's political and they think I'll have an insight with that so I get to choose the work that I want to do or don't want to do and that means you know I have to sacrifice it I'm not appearing on some BBC political drama which you know would be wonderful if anyone's listening but <laughs> I can decide when I look at a play actually that's not a voice I want to speak with right now or actually this play isn't fantastic but it's got a, a story or a narrative or an idea that I think deserves to be heard and you know I can lend that to, to it but ultimately therapy acting uh, politics um, it's going to sound twee but I really genuinely believe it is about listening it's about the moment of being with another human being or groups of human beings and just being in a space where you're comfortable to be vulnerable you're comfortable to hear the other person's vulnerability and you're willing to ask questions to look forward to solutions and for me although the fact I'm an actor or a therapist a politician I suppose they're not different things for me when I'm in the space I'm very much the same person the language I use might be different so when I'm having a therapy conversation with someone they're very rarely talking a political language but the language of being active about changing things that you're not happy with about looking for your own internal locus of control rather than letting the situation around you influence you are all things I, I, I speak about and that last one's very interesting to me because I said you know the last six months have been rough and I think it's because I've always had a very strong internal sense of um, I wouldn't say it's as strong as a god complex but, but growing up I always felt that if something was wrong I could change it and even if it wasn't political I would I would work to change that if it was something in my community I'd get people together and I'd change that and of course as a political candidate it was incredibly empowering that someone could speak to you about a problem and then you would suddenly have a microphone and if no one was talking about that problem you could be talking about it and I noticed I was lucky to be in Holborn and St Pancras because two of the other candidates were Keir Starmer who'd been director of prosecution uh, services one of the top lawyers in the country Natalie Bennett, the leader of the Green Party at the time. So I had this opportunity almost nightly to talk about issues they hadn't been talking about and then hear their opinions and then sure enough those things started to get talked about more and then they even started to feed into mainstream media. Um, I'm not saying necessarily I did it but I think there's a zeitgeist that you can start to inform that it starts to have those things. Um, but that got taken away with me, away from me earlier this year, or partly it did. So when I got blocked, it was just like a brick wall that I suddenly ran against. So there's this real feeling now of this stuff's going on around the world, the things that we're talking about, and I feel like I've lost some of that internal locus of control to do things about it. Of course, I haven't. I'm having this conversation right now, which is part of that. Um, it's brought out the activist in me again, which is brilliant. So I've been going on marches and going on more issue-based things rather than party political things. Um, I've not been campaigning for any party because I just think until my complaints resolved I just don't want to get into that um, but to bring it back to the, the students I work with I think frequently anyone who has a problem is because they're allowing themselves and that's not victim blaming um, because we all do it um, allowing themselves to get swept with what the world's doing as opposed to thinking about what can I do in the world right now which is going to help the situation interesting yeah I mean it's definitely like a lot of yeah a lot of it living in the moment I guess is a thing that both is what you're doing when you're performing in any in any sense Absolutely. like so I have I mean I've acted anyway but I you know when you're telling true stories the best true stories like which are not acting because you're telling your own truth is is when you're in the moment like re-experiencing it remembering it like 
you're alive to the environment the best comedy is alive to the environment um, so living in the moment is part of that but it's also a thing which is you know very much a part of therapy uh, and my as someone with mental health issues I find that my issue often is uh, worrying about the past or worrying about the future but not being able to actually be present in the moment and that's quite a common experience with certain kinds of mental health issues not with all of them uh, and you know certainly some people live too much in the moment and that can also be a problem too yeah. I think um, like so, you end up shouting at Jeremy Corbyn <laughs> right, indeed and that's, a, and that's so I can see how all those things fit together I yeah. mean when did they come into your life though when did, when did therapy or acting whichever one came first when yeah, did you um, so acting definitely came first before anything so if we'd had a conversation at seven years old I wanted to be an actor is what I wanted to do I got into therapy because um, I was in a play when I was 14 and um, my hands were shaking because um, I was nervous on stage and it just wasn't a big problem and then I started to go to auditions I started to notice my hands were shaking on auditions and that was more of a problem but still not a huge problem I just thought you know I'll breathe and I'll get through it and then one day I was taking a picture and then my friend said your hand's shaking and I realised that my hands had just started to shake generally in, in social situations um, I went to see a doctor and he prescribed me antidepressants um, my feelings about antidepressants are a whole other conversation for another day probably but I knew that that wasn't for me I, I didn't want to take antidepressants I said I'm not depressed he said you've got a high level anxiety disorder this will calm you down and I just thought I really just you know I don't want to do that um, and that's not a com- comment or a judgement on people who do then someone said to me you should go and see a hypnotherapist and I kind of ridiculed the idea I'd only ever thought of kind of Paul McKenna and turning people into chickens um, but things got so bad I thought maybe I should go see a hypnotherapist so um, I researched online for the most expensive hypnotherapist I could find because although I didn't have any money at the time I thought if someone's going to mess around with my brain I want to I want to pay good money for it which now is such a ridiculous belief but I saw it going on I went to see this guy who just told me stories for about an hour and a half and my hands never really shook again so I became really interested in what he did and I found an organisation called the Quest Institute or a cognitive hypnotherapy organisation so they combined CBT and hypnotherapy to create this form of therapy I went to do the course it was a 10 month course at weekends Uh, five months into it I ran out of money to do the course so I went on an acting job uh, to Italy um, to make some money to come back I was speaking to the teacher recently who said that when they saw me go to Italy he said to his wife he's off we won't, we won't ever see him again and they didn't mean it in a nasty way I think you know, I, was in, I was endeared to them but they just thought I was kind of flighty like that but yeah. I was enjoying the course so much I knew that was coming back I finished the course I got practice on Harley Street actually uh, number one Harley Street is a cognitive hypnotherapist and they spent a while um, doing cognitive hypnotherapy and, and helping people through things um, working on Holly Street meant I had to charge a certain amount of money that wasn't comfortable with my my belief system so I let Holly Street go um, and I started to just work with friends for very cheap but my friends were invariably actors just from the kind of networks I worked in those actors have been to drama schools um, and then those drama schools started to become interested in what I did and now I have this wonderful job of going into drama schools and working with our students what's beautiful is the student doesn't pay me the school pays me so it gives us a complete freedom when we're in the room there's no need to fix anything there's no need to rush anything there's just an hour or two hours just to spend in each other's space where you know they can 
they can be heard. So is hypnotism hypnotism part of that still? Um, So hypnotism is a very complicated subject because I'm a hypnotherapist that doesn't believe in hypnotism. So um, (laughs) hypnotism, I think, is everything you were just talking about. It's that in-the-moment state where other things don't matter. What is going on right now is, is what we're focused on. So... Yes, it's entirely hypnotic, but only in the same way that we've been having this conversation. So it's in this kind cafe. of meditation to a certain extent. You could it is, but meditation <laughs> implies that it needs to maybe be in a quiet place. But what I was going to say is that there's people over there chatting, they're yeah, over there chatting. Yeah. I didn't know they'd walked in this room until I just drew attention well, to yeah, them. Because, I, I knew, unfortunately, because so, I've got headphones on, so I can hear absolutely. them. <laughs> um, but because I've been focused on, on that conversation without headphones and not had to pay yes, any attention right. to anything, I've been hypnotised by talking to you and who might be you know, listening to it. So am I hypnotising people? Yes, all the time, but at the same time, I don't believe in hypnosis. So You don't believe it? exists or you don't believe that it's ethical I don't believe it exists okay and I think if it existed it'd be entirely ethical because so I work with teachers sometimes and they worry about influencing their class and what I think you know I often say is you're influencing them at every moment anyway so all you're doing is becoming more aware of the words you're using the body language you're using and what effect that might be having on your students than if you were just throwing random your baggage and your crap at them the whole time why don't we just throw positivity at them so I think it's just a particular way of doing things or saying things that is a more focused and and I would say more ethical way of doing things Um, similar to when I'm in the hustings am I hypnotising the audience absolutely not but what I am doing is registering the audience registering where they're at what's their mental state at because I don't want to upset anyone in that audience and that's not because I'm worried about their vote although of course that plays into it but it's more that I want to take some ethical responsibility for the fact that I have a microphone and what I say is going to affect people do I upset people sometimes yes absolutely I get shouted at I get heckled but I still want to make sure that what I've said is in an honouring and respectful way. And that exchange, I think, is hypnotic in both ways. So when someone's shouting at you, they're hypnotised by what you've just said. Because when I heckled Jeremy Corbyn, I was hypnotised in that moment. I wasn't thinking about the fact that um, there was going to be consequences to what I was doing. I was just locked in on him. And at that moment, wanted him to, to go, actually, yes, you're entirely right. I should have done more. Let's have a conversation about how we can get back in Europe right now. Of that's course, that didn't really happen. interesting. <laughs> I mean, and also, I, I mean, I guess that's what art does as well. Like okay, it hypnotises an audience. And I think that's exactly why I said before that art's one of the most important things you can do. People are rarely listening to politicians <laughs> unless they're... Uh, unless they have that hypnotic quality and Obama comes into mind there and I think even people's boundaries up against Obama have have been tricky over over the years but when people walk into art they're that much more receptive to ideas and as soon as art preaches at people you've lost that relationship you've lost that connection I think that's why those can be the worst pieces pieces of art but as soon as that art presents or facilitates a space where both the artist whether that's the playwright, the artist, the actor, the singer, the dancer, musician, the, you know, whoever that might be. Once that's become a two-way transactional relationship, right. I think there's nothing more hypnotic and there's nothing more life-changing and there's nothing more politically affirming that can change the world than a piece of art that is powerful in that moment. Well, I hope you're right on the, on the change the world part, but I, I definitely agree with the, the rest of that analysis. I mean, for me, art is a communication, it is an exchange, uh, all of those kinds of words, a contract I've sometimes thought of it as, and so if you, you have to make sure that the audience have signed up for what you're actually going to do for them. Their expectations matter. If they've walked in expecting one thing and you give them a different thing, then they, they understandably find that contract to have been breached. Yeah. Whereas if they come in with it, you know, it's your job as the artist to, to manage their expectations. So my gentle provocation to you is 
if that contract is valid and both parties have had a life-changing experience or a, uh, 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 an experience that changes a moment in their life, how can that then not change the well, yeah, it can. I mean, it does. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, or I would even say it must. Where everything we do, like every single word I say changes yeah, the world, okay. uh, world on, a, on a philosophical level. But it's just like, do all of these little changes, will they add up to the big changes that we're talking about wanting yeah. to see or not? Um, I hope that they will. Um, I think as an artist, if I was to start believing that the art that I was, gonna, that I was making was going to change the world, yeah. that would be a, a problem. Yeah. Like, I think I probably did believe that when I was a teenager, when I was young, you know, when I was kind of naive about it, and my art wasn't as good um, because of that belief. And the more I believe that I can't change the world, probably the more politically useful my, my work has been. Well, but part of me wonders sometimes, I really sound like I'm just being provocative now, devil's up, no, if bad art can even change the world even more, because actually, I mean, bad art is a problematic term, but art that's um, incomplete or missing things, because actually that then gives responsibility or onus on the viewer or audience member if they're playing the game and that's the important bit if they're playing the game to then fill in those gaps no to, yeah sure I mean start. I agree with that yeah. but I mean that's what I mean in a way when I'm talking about good art I'm talking about art that leaves those gaps for the audience rather than tells them what I think they should think um, so yeah whether it's good art or bad art both both forms of art can do that I, I agree like I don't like good bad it's like most binaries apart from life death um, it's not is nonsense. Like I can't think of. You know, I was trying to. Talk, I was talking to someone the other day, and the only binary I, I could actually agree with was you're alive or you're dead. Um, Even that one's tricky, right? Yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe because I'm yeah because I'm agnostic. I shouldn't be agreeing with that. I guess. Sure. Um, so I should I should go back and uh, re- revise that conversation if I can uh, with that person. But yeah, like art is. Uh, a, th- a space where um, where the audience also brings something to that. Like I, I, I believe in the death of the author kind of theory. That like whilst I am an author, like it, it's, it's so weird. If you use the phrase "death of an author" to authors, they get really annoyed. Um, and I'm an author, so I, I'm not talking about my actual literal death. I'm just talking about how my intention don't matter because the audience will make from the art the art will be what they want it to be what it is for them um, and that's an exciting thing for me because then I can get more back in this exchange because they'll come back with different ideas than I had in the first place um, which kind of I guess brings me on to so the, the third way we know each other is that you have are currently appearing in my podcast and my other podcast or not even just my podcast because it, it, Jen my partner is my co-creator on it and all of the cast have contributed to the show and like it's it's written itself it's become bigger than than any than any of the sums of its parts which is exactly what you hope for from collaboration um but yeah you are in that show the family tree feel free to spoiler away because i'll cut out the spoilers and use them uh, as kind of extra content on the patreon so i kind of want you to spoil it because then because then I've got something to entice people to sign up for the Patreon. Yeah, I was really sad when I couldn't hear the end of uh, Tasha's uh, discussion with right. you. Right. I was like, oh, I want to hear it. Well, you don't. You shouldn't sign up for the Patreon, but we'll send you the stuff anyway. Okay, amazing. But, I mean, you shouldn't sign up for the Patreon because one of the things that the Patreon will hopefully allow us to do is to pay you more money than we've already paid you. So we, ha- we haven't not paid Zach, but we want to pay him better than we have. You play the character of Ben. Yeah. Literally, this week is the week when the big twist episode has happened. Okay. But the weird thing for us, me and Jen, as the creators of the show, is everybody's listening to it at different paces, so not everybody's at the twist. 
but also I we're not we don't want to spoil it so we're not saying what the twist is yeah so how do you sell a twist when you don't want to give people away what it is you know it's a strange situation like we we, we almost want to keep it secret against our own interests you know um but but anyway i mean I reached out to you to play Ben partly because I did know you were a therapist. I did know that that was something that you had in your arsenal. And I thought if you're a therapist, then kind of that the kind of acting you're going to do is you're going to be comfortable with kind of improvisation, with kind of a conversation, right? Because that's what you do. And also, I, I, another reason I cast you is because, I mean, I, I'd seen you act as well, additionally, yeah. but was that you're political. And the role I wanted you to play was a political <laughs> one, and it's so much more helpful if someone has that information just in their head yeah. and doesn't have to research it really, really intensively before they get in the room. Sure. So that was the, the reasons I cast you. We didn't we didn't know that how great you'd be. You've been you've been even better than than, than we were Thank expecting. You. And actually, you and Tasha um, were the first ones we recorded yeah. so you set the tone in some ways for the rest of the like we relaxed in some ways after your, your episode because you guys have done such a great job what has it been like for you I mean initially you didn't know what you were signing up for right yeah yeah no I had, I had no idea really it was amazing uh, it would be the obvious thing to say uh, the tricky bit was that um, although I have a lot of similarities with Ben superficially I would say the differences are probably bigger yeah, yeah and the, the big one was I know you talked with this uh, with Tasha in, in her episode of uh, GBA was that uh, we literally met each other and then we started recording probably right. what, five, ten minutes later. And as a person, I would like to think I'd do my best to be respectful, particularly if someone was my girlfriend. Actually, no, I'm respectful to everyone, actually. It wouldn't matter if, if they were my partner or not. Whereas the character of Ben, for me, wouldn't let Cora speak, uh, Tasha's character, um, because he's so opinionated and so of those ideas. So there's a tricky dynamic between meeting someone and wanting to get on with them as an actor and thinking, oh, yeah, I want to like each other, and her not knowing, actually... I do let people speak and I don't dominate conversations. <laughs> so I just remember it being a, a personal challenge to let go of that during the, the conversation. And a few times I thought, oh, I need to speak. And then I think, oh, no, don't speak. Give Tasha a moment. And then think, no, you just need to speak. Like The, ca- the character will speak. Uh, well, we, we knew Tasha would be, uh, like, I, I knew Tasha would be, like, totally capable of uh, oh, She can hold her own. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But even to the point of, I remember just before we started to record, there was a conversation about whether our daughter was called Maya or Mia. Right. <laughs> that's, that's how surreal it was in terms of jumping into something and just going for it. And how do you feel about the character of Ben? And like, you've had so much to do with making that character and like, that's kind of changed, not changed the direction, but the, the thing that everybody brought to their characters wrote the show. Yeah. So, so you've made Ben so much better and much more layered, I think, than, than the original character we were conceiving of. But... Do you think he's a sympathetic character? No. Um, so uh, I'm referring a lot to Tasha's uh, podcast. No, I guess I've only just listened to. They it. would make sense to be uh, totally. But she said about piece. how, uh, as an actor, you have to like your character, and I completely see where she's coming from. Um, but I think there's other ways to relate to someone without liking them, and I'm right. sure she should probably make that qualification too. Um, and I don't like Ben. He's the sort of person. If I met him at a house party. I would literally want to be in any other conversation. Yeah. Or if I was feeling mischievous, I'd enjoy winding him up and then leaving him with my mate, you know, just, yeah, to, yeah, yeah. just to suffer that. But I think, you know, I guess he's what I'm... I hadn't thought about this till the words are coming out of my mouth. He's what I'm scared of being, which is that person who's so certain 
of what they want and so passionate, which is great. But the passion plus the certainty just equals this. They've just stopped listening and they're ready for a fight at every moment. And they're never ready to cooperate. They're just always ready to challenge, provoke and struggle through things. So, you know, it's, it's not that I hate him, but I think there's, there's parts of me in there that um, I, I definitely want to keep the passion and I love being passionate but I'd never want to be that certain he's, he's I think, you know I, I'm so interested in how he's turned out like like it's been really interesting I think in the in the you know within the with the two boys uh, in the family I think I expected there to be the least sympathy for Nathan okay. and the more sympathy for Ben but it's been absolutely the opposite sure. way around Nathan's a lovely character yeah, yeah absolutely and even though Nathan is just as blind to the world in lots of ways as Ben is. The thing is, Ben thinks he's not blind to the world. He thinks he's the, he knows what's going on. Yeah. Nathan knows he's outside, an outsider that no one listens to him. He, know, he knows, you know, that it's kind of like the two sides of white privilege, if you like, or like male privilege. Sure. I mean, what about the big twist then that's happened this week? I mean, like, so you signed up for a murder mystery, <laughs> kind of, right? And even that, you weren't that enthusiastic about the idea of a murder mystery, right? Sure. What was your feelings initially when I when we came to you? Like, why did you say yes? Um, I think I wasn't enthusiastic for that exact same reason I said to you, that I get to pick projects. So if something isn't immediately political to me, I tend to immediately, that makes me think of there are other places I'd be better spending my time right now. But there are a few things. One is I'd just never done a podcast before. A friend had just really got me into This American Life because um, I'd never listened to podcasts. So I was really slow to, to listen to that. And obviously I'm talking to a podcast audience who are going to be horrified by that idea. <laughs> but I just didn't listen to them. And now I love This American Life. I love this show. And also a, a show, I don't know if you know it, called um, Beautiful Random Beautiful Conversations with Strangers. Um, is it... Is it- Beautiful Anonymous. Yes, that's ah, it. Good, yeah. Chris, Chris Gethin. Yes, there we go. I knew yeah. I'd get the title. It's, it's an amazing show. People should totally check it out. Um, which I, and it reminds me of this in many ways. I just feel like he's pushing more where you're listening more. So I guess that's <laughs> the, the different dynamic. Uh, uh, so I did partly because it was a podcast. Um, partly because when I met you at that panel, I was just intrigued by what you were going to create. And also partly just... I think it just met me at the right time, the idea of improvising an entire season of a, of a radio or podcast series was, was, was interesting. Right. There's something interesting about someone who wants to make political points at the expense of talking about his, his dead father. There was definitely things in there that resonated. And then when there was the twist... You recorded the episode yeah. and then we told you what Yeah, the yeah, twist straight was. away. I mean, it was just shocking. And, <laughs> and kind of, I was already nervous for you in terms of messing around with your brand. So your brand being about honest, authentic conversations, oh, if that's yeah. what it is, but that's what I see it as. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah, to then make right. a podcast around things that are anything but authentic, honest conversations. Yeah. Although they're authentic and honest in their own way. Yeah. So I think I was already at risk of that. And then to realise that was essentially what I would consider a sci-fi or a fantasy series. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you class it as that. Was, yeah, it could be. It could be classed as either of those, I think. I mean, it was, was hugely shocking. Um, and if you'd said to me initially, that's what it's going to be, I probably would have said no. Um, and I'm so glad that I did it. Good. Because... Um, there was a coherency to it, a truth to it, and I think a real purpose that those identity questions are, are beautiful in the same way that I'm not a True Blood fan, but in their initial seasons, I know they were coming up with some really interesting questions. I, I mean, there's, there's countless scenarios in sci-fi no, series where you're well, in it. Leftovers is a show that oh, I got so, into yeah. because you recommended it. Yeah. And, and, and I think Leftovers is the kind, like, when, when we, me and Jen both watched that together, we loved it. Yeah. And that kind of made it clear to us that, you know, 
you would be a, a good person in the show because of the fact that you like those kinds of uh, those kind of things which are kind of fantasy but they're not yeah. really it's not about that it's about human people and all of that sort of stuff yeah I guess they're, they're just a disruption to human dynamics right. to then see how we communicate once some of the artifice is stripped away. Right, because initially I remember you saying to me uh, and Jen in, our, in, in your character meeting that you were initially more interested in the cuttings episode than the, the yeah. main episode, which was an interesting uh, premonition almost of what the actual show was going to be because I think as the show goes on, those cuttings episodes, the, the, the line between the two blurs very much and, yeah. and the politics that were within that cutting informs the way people will read the show as much as, as anything else. Like, it's interesting that you thought, like, there's no obvious poli- political element to this show, because I think certainly in the final version of the show, there's a lot of politics. It's just, it's just, not, it's just not preaching, but it's all there, and people can absolutely take away quite a lot of political messages, which is, I guess, interesting for both me and Jen, because I normally make stuff that's kind of a bit political, and she doesn't tend to go there as much. And you so, pulled her into it. Yeah, well, I, mean, she, I think her stuff is political in a, in a similar way to the show is, in that when you talk about truth and humanity and try and see things from different people's perspectives and talk about identity and all of these things, you can't help but be political. It's just not with a big P. Whereas my stuff tends to be a little bit more likely to get into a big P. I mean, I've just literally done like a show about, about masculinity where I talk about political theory as part of the show and also personal but political as well whereas that's not an area that Jen's ever really worked in so it was interesting having you on board like a lot of the performers have political views and and, and can bring their politics to the show don't get me wrong but you were playing someone who was overtly political yeah I mean how was that for you did you did you try and make his politics different from yours or did yeah you no I did definitely try and make them different and once I knew that he was a provocative devil's advocate, I think. <laughs> and I think the, the truth is, there wasn't a lot of thought about what I believe, and it yeah, really yeah, was, yeah. without sounding pretentious about it, serving the character in the moment. Absolutely. It wasn't until later looking back that I, you know, once we finished where I thought, you know, where are those arguments coming from? And that's interesting because although they're not my arguments, they are my arguments, and that's an interesting thing about any actor or writer, right? That they came from somewhere. So somewhere in me, I have the capacity to stand in those shoes and say, okay, I see your argument, which with the current political state, again, we can't do enough of is to stand in other people's shoes and rather than demonise a Brexiteer to actually say, why did you vote Brexit? Why, what was like? going on for you in your life? Why? Yeah, um, I'm very into game theory at the moment. I'm spending a lot of time kind of self-studying game theory. And one thing I particularly like about that is um, when you get down to algebra and numbers, how clear everything is in front of you and you lose so much of that kind of fogginess. Um, but even in that, there's a real philosophy and a real perspective that come on how you get to those particular numbers or, or the process that you do that is almost inherently political. And I only mention this because I just think... If even in maths you can't get away from politics, <laughs> what what story can you tell or what narrative can you tell right. where there isn't going to be something political? Well, yeah, absolutely. Every single thing you say is political. The personal is the political. It's like absolutely my belief. I love that we're stood on a stage while we're staying. Yeah, it's well, weird. Even like it's, yeah, we're on a stage. It's true. <laughs> like we're on a little stage within the cafe. If anyone comes to the cafe, they can they can they can work out exactly where we've been. They have it here for poetry readings. Right. 
um, yeah, it, it has felt a little bit like we're, we're performing in a situation where nobody's interested in us, which is quite, like, quite, quite <laughs> really a, bad stand-up show. Yeah, but I think, I think that's quite healthy for performers to be in situations like that sometimes. The last question that I ask people, oh, first of all, before I ask you that last question, I, as a listener to the show, you'll know that I like to take a moment to say it's been a pleasure to get better acquainted with it's you. It's been so much fun. Uh, we've been talking for a while. I really um, so yeah, I saw your eyes good. bulges and like yeah, yeah, yeah. I was surprised, but some of that will be cut out because of the fact that uh, it'll be spoilers. But yeah, the last uh, question that I ask everybody is, do you have anything to plug? So I thought about this. I don't have anything to plug personally, but there's certainly a couple of people I would love to plug. Uh, so one is Team Angelica, which is Ricky Beagle Blair, who's a dear friend of mine who writes and promotes playwrights working particularly in uh, black and minority ethnic theatre right. and with LGBT groups, but also with uh, people who would consider themselves the majority, um, right. or with white middle-class people. So yeah, um, I mean, anyone is welcome and everyone is welcome. I know a few people who work with uh, Ricky Beadleblair, like, and everybody says really amazingly positive yeah. things about And I was in a play with him earlier this year, and it was just a fantastic experience. Um, so I would encourage anyone who's into... Oh, and sorry, the beautiful thing as well is um, he writes plays for people, so he doesn't have a script. What he does is he finds a group of people who interest him, so he doesn't hold the formal auditions. You would go for a coffee like this. When something about the person engages him, he writes a part for them, gets them together, and then the play goes. A little bit like Family Tree, actually, as you're rehearsing, you don't know where the end is. So you could be the day before the dress rehearsal or the day of the dress rehearsal, and you're getting the final few pages of script. Right. And which, again, I absolutely love. I know it freaks some people out, but I absolutely love and I said if people engage him but actually he says he'll work with everybody so at some point he says if you harass him enough he'll work with you so I'd encourage people to look for Team Angelica and also I mentioned the choir which is the London International Gospel Choir uh, Nav is a guy who runs it Naveen Arles he's my goddaughter's father so someone very close with and it's a community choir which means everyone is welcome so it's not about how well you sing or if you've had experience before just anyone can literally come to a rehearsal and it's a non-religious choir that sometimes sings spiritual or religious songs often we're singing Whitney Houston Michael Jackson or Justin Timberlake anyone's welcome we've performed on the X Factor for the Prime Minister uh, at Liberal Democrat political conference <laughs> for the Red Cross at the OT so if anyone's into singing and wants to join a really fun I'd encourage that too. I'm thinking of so many other friends in my head who are going, how would you promote that and not promote me? Stephen Hu as well, who's a playwright and actor, doing really interesting work, British, Chinese, um, mixed race actor. He's just written a play called Jamaica Boy, um, which is about the Chinese Jamaican community in Jamaica. Oh, cool. Well, that, all of those things sound <laughs> excellent and definitely worth promoting. And, I've got an opportunity to plug. I need to plug, plug, plug. Yeah, no, that's great. And I like the fact that you plugged other people. It's always nice when people do that. Um, and the last thing I ask all my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Well, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Bye, everyone. So I'm going to play a new trailer at the end of today's episode, which is for the second half of this season of The Family Tree. And if you haven't listened to episodes one to six, the teaser element of this trailer will be more of a spoiler for you. So you might want to not listen to that and go off and listen to the first five episodes of The Family Tree. You can follow Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at GBA Podcast. You can like it on Facebook, www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk is one place you can find it. And remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted.
you knocked on the door and I have, I have simply opened it. And Mark was, was taken over by a changeling. When I began making this show, I thought that I was making a human interest piece about what it's like to be involved in a Twilight Zone-style mystery. I thought I'd end up either finding no answer or finding an explanation that was related to what we think of as real. But that's not what happened at all. Everything you do has some sort of consequence. This isn't a comfortable experience for me. I'm... Well, why are you doing it? But I feel like you can make a choice whether to transfer that or not. He knew that he wasn't really my dad. Well, there's obviously something weird going on. I don't know what's real. A lot of it's out there already. You can't put the genie back in the bottle, I get that. No, there's no changeling. I feel a bit like we're talking about it as though it's been resolved, and I don't know whether that's quite right. I feel like there's a lot more room for more things to be... Disgusting. Lots of people feel crazy, right? If we hold secrets or if we hold the truth from the world, it's going to get us eventually. Treated like any other information you might get to try and understand what might be happening. You have to answer those questions because we can't pretend that that isn't happening. It's funny when people call people different. It's like different to what? Obviously, I wasn't expecting <laughs> this. Yeah kind of um, confession, I suppose. This is the personal versus what's happening in the much bigger changes, but you've got to be brave and you've got to you've got to lead from the front. You didn't mention this in the first time we were recording, so I think it's fair to say that you were keeping things back. I guess I was a bit cautious of what it was explained as to the rest of the world. They've both known this thing that they haven't talked to each other about. And I don't know how they've done that because it's such a big weight. I did find out why Mark's dead body was not the same body as the man who had left his family 15 years ago. But the answer I found is not the kind of answer that people believe. If you listen back to past episodes of The Family Tree, then I hope that you'll see why, even though it seems impossible, I've come to believe it. I don't know who you are. You're not Mark. No. No, I'm not. For more information about the show, go to thefamilytreepodcast.co.uk. And help the family tree to grow by becoming a patron and helping to fund the show.